Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to 2019 and episode 104 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I am Michael Garfield, one of four voices to regale you in this episode, along with culture critic John David Ebert, Jungian psychologist and poet Michael Aaron Cummins, and Ikyu Sojun, a.k.a. Mimetic Value, on Twitter, who enters this conversation as a computer programmer and scholar of systems thinking. Together, the four of us constitute a sizable fraction of the people who have constellated around John's writings on hypermodernity, an articulate and provocative thesis about the digitization of the human soul and the collapse of meaning in the global shopping mall of the 21st century, which John and I discussed in episode 65 as part of the Blade Runner 2049 miniseries. Anyway, it makes no sense for me to try and summarize the fabulous and far-reaching discussion in two parts that you are about to hear. But as a bit of framing exposition, it's worth noting that this was recorded last June in Santa Fe at Interplanetary Festival, uh, which I was attending as a performer uh, before I started working for Santa Fe Institute. And it was the first time that all four of us guys got to meet in person. So the conversation you're about to hear is uh, (laughs) enthusiastic. I'll say um, all four of us were really looking forward to finally getting to pursue this discussion in person after months uh, in a message thread with one another and fired up after getting to meet Neil Stevenson in person at Interplanetary. Um, I had just finished reading Snow Crash myself. So more than most episodes, this one emerged out of the spirit of excitement that happens when you bring people together in physical space with one another for the first time after building up a real head of steam. And uh, so (laughs) it's fast and furious and a little disjointed. And it's like a real conversation. And after six months of being in the hopper, I'm really excited this one gets to see the light of day. But first, I just want to thank the new Patreon supporters that have chipped in this last week. Uh, Ethan Ross, Kyle Walter, Tom Murray, Stephen Williamson, Matthew Engelbrecht, and also uh, Michael Kunitsky, who signed up to support my music on Bandcamp. Way to go, all of you. I am in the midst of a, holy shit, how do I keep this podcast going on a weekly basis with a new full-time job and a child on the way. So I've set a goal for 200 patrons. We are hovering rather consistently around 130 If you like this show, you'd like to possibly be a part of the new science fiction book club we're starting up this month, and you want it to continue coming out every week instead of every other week, you got another two, five, ten bucks a month, hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and 
cast your vote. Even if you're completely broke, head on over to Patreon anyway. I just published a compilation, a two-hour virtual discussion edited down from 15 of my favorite Future Fossils episodes from 2018. It's called The Sediment of Sentiments, and it is an extremely potent distillation of some of the most extraordinary insights and wisdom that has been on display with this show in the last year. I'm extremely proud of it and honored to have had all of these amazing people on the show and would love for you to benefit from that juicy nugget of awesomeness. So, uh, yeah, enjoy. It's my New Year's gift to you all above and beyond this beloved but financially precarious regular offering. Anyway, it is my honor and my pleasure to get to share this conversation, the first ever in-person discussion between the hypermoderns with you here on Future Fossils. Enjoy, and stay tuned for part two next week. Actually, you know what? Let's start where you were, talking about video games and yeah, that was cool. modern yeah. literature. Because mm-hmm. I think... Hyper-modern uh, <laughs> literature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, I think Shigeru Miyamoto is the Dante of the hyper-modern era, in the sense that Dante created a whole metaphor landscape that defined an entire age. I think Shigeru Miyamoto, this is the guy who developed Donkey Kong, Super Mario Brothers, and The Legend of Zelda... Those games uh, created the whole video game revolution in, in the depth that we know it today. And I think that the every video game is Super Mario or it's Legend of Zelda all over again. You know, just like... So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just an interesting idea that I'm playing around with and I want to write something about it. But I'm open to hearing more about what you guys think about that, so... There's two things that, that this plugs into for me. One is uh, nextnature.net, which is a Dutch group, and they have their their sort of meta logo mm-hmm. is all of the logos for all of the companies that they could find that feature an animal or some a plant or something. You know, in the sense that like Amazon.com replaces the Amazon. You know, mm-hmm. that they have this this thing that we're still in the wilderness. We, we accept that we're still oh, in the yeah, wilderness. Right. But the wilderness the has metaphors. become... Yeah, the wilderness yeah. is of, like, images of itself now. It's not... Or, mm-hmm. or you know, things that... And they, they occupy a kind of a weird space with this because they're super techno-positive. They're not really being... They're, they're like, cheeky and critical in a, like, distinctly Dutch kind of way. But they also seem totally in favor of it. Like, they're way up on eco-conservancy. They launched a cryptocurrency called EcoCoin. <laughs> but it's a, it's pegged to, uh, like, I think each coin is worth a tree or something. Oh, so wow. it's like, really cool. So yeah. that it's like, how do you how do you determine, this is the, the question that plagues ecosystem services. And I think is, like, the argument for why 
um, the the mere sort of specter of the nat of the what we of the think of right. as the natural will never actually suffice because we don't really know what you know. All, we know what we what we observe a tree doing, but we don't like oh, until what more recently. Mean, what do you mean by suffice? Like, well, what suffice. I mean is like what I mean is that like until a couple of years ago, we didn't have a uh, and, and any idea that there was such a thing as the wood wide web, like all this shit going on underground, yeah, you know, all of the mycelial relationships and the microbial networks, mm-hmm. and that for the for the internet, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, these trees are basically just oh, like you mean, you're you not know, talking, right, the, the actual, actual yeah, the actual system, the actual right. forest. Right. Uh, Radio Lab did a great episode about this, and and it's like. Until then, we thought each of these trees was like living on its own. Oh yeah, yeah you know. Right. And now yeah. we finds out that they're they're all communicating. That, that most through. of the ground is actually most of the action yeah. is actually underground, yeah. and the trees are just nodes in a network. Right. Yeah. And they're just gathering Rise. sunlight into this thing that's going on underground. Yeah. You know. And so, like, when it comes to um, the, all, you know, Donkey Kong, mm-hmm. Zelda, and Mario being sort of the foundation foundational texts of <laughs> hypermodern literature, yeah. then that's that's great because they're all eight bit. It's like uh, a it's like a blunt force reminder that we're never gonna that we can't digitize the soul. I guess is what I'm getting. Yeah, at. right. Well, and you also see the, a lot of these familiar archetypes, like 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 Super Mario is a classic shaman. I mean, everything that he does is becoming animal. It's like he, you know, there's a feather that he takes that gives him the, you know a. Uh, that tail that makes him fly, and he's shooting fireballs, and he can like teleport to different places and stuff like that, and and he eats mushrooms that make him grow big or small and stuff like that. So I mean, and then Zelda is the classic uh, knights in shining armor. It's Percival, you know, um, knights the Round Table. I mean, that's it's awesome. It's these same these themes repeating again and again in, in video games now. Link does literally go through a waterfall. Like to get behind the waterfall in a lot of these games. Yeah, he like, does. Yeah, he catches and, the veil. Right, and then the one that I'm playing now, which is an older game, it's called uh, I can't remember the name now, but um, he actually starts out as a little kid, and he's like an orphan, and he's been raised by this family in this forest, and they all reject him and they don't accept him, and he's not one of them, and everything. But then he gets called to go on this big adventure because he meets this tree, and the tree tells him that he's got this great destiny and he has to go rescue the princess and this whole thing. And so then you play his character and he goes on this adventure and he actually grows up and becomes like this big hero. And then he goes back to the forest where he grew up in and, and now he's, you know, he's got a shield and a sword and he's like this big hero. It's like, it's classic uh, mythological archetypes and stories. I mean, it's fucking cool, man. All in this avatar that you can play and act out. In a way, it's more effective than hearing these stories the old-fashioned way. But there's a part of me that rebels against that because I'm sort of like me and John, like you know, we're Gutenberg guys that everything is literary and we want to read everything. And so to to coordinate myself to this sort of electronic universe where this stuff is happening is it's disorienting and it's strange. But I'm trying to be open to maybe these same themes can be communicated through this other this this other kind of medium, you know what I mean? And not be such a snob about everything having to be literary, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that maybe... So, I mean, and I actually think that's the way the collective unconscious works. Like, I think that these these images are so important for human consciousness that it doesn't... They don't have a preference. They'll upload themselves into anything, you know? It's, if it's... They, they, you know, we will find the reflections of 
what we need in anything, you know, so if it's in a book or if it's in a video game or if it's in, you know, in a meditation fantasy, you'll find the images that you need to adapt your consciousness to the conditions of your time. And I think these video games are actually doing it very effectively, at least the Nintendo games, because they stay very close to these childhood images that are close to the collective unconscious in a, in a kind of Jungian sense, like the fairy tales and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about Grand Theft Auto and that sort of thing. I like Grand Theft Auto. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, could, so, yeah, tell us why you like Grand Theft Auto. Because, no, because I, yeah, you wrote because a it's like a, yeah. people say, well, the, these video games are violent, they're bad for you, but I think they're actually... They're creating these sort of cathartic loops for those aggressive impulses that are inside of you. It's it's being channeled. It's being they're healthy because it's and and Grand Theft Auto gives you this. You know, the video games aren't the problem; they're the solution to the problem of living in these bizarre cosmopolitan cities that are these huge megalopolitan machines that we're constantly being you know stressed out by. We're constantly receiving stressors from this machine. And video games, I think, most of them, at least the ones I grew up playing, uh, provide escape scenarios that if you just figure out the labyrinth, you can navigate your way through it and defeat capitalism, defeat the industrial society. You know, there, There's all these unconscious semiotics that are going on when these people are playing. Well, Ganon is a greedy pig. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ganon right. from Zelda. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He yeah. steals the princess, and you have to defeat him and his whole order. Like I never thought Ganon is capitalism, right? That's another uh, well, uh, way to think about that. Right? Armored monopolist, yeah. But, but so, no, no, so GTA, you're yeah. a GTA apologist. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, right. I like, yeah, GTA. I love it. Enough. GTA I, apologist. I love the game. But the thing is, like, I never played through any of the stories. I always hop on. It's like a, it's almost like a meditation experience. Like me putting the cheat for flying the cars, and I'll just fly the cars like over the oceans <laughs> for for probably like half an hour. So that's, I think, the difference is that what you're talking about in terms of like the earliest video games. You, they were you had some choice about like when to jump and so on, but it was still more like you can you can see these playthroughs of like all of Mario Brothers, right? Where it's like that's optimized. You can't do it better than that, and that was like the whole thing. There's a skill where, to it, yeah. Whereas like with GTA, it's uh, you know Doug Rushkoff talks about narrative collapse in Present Shock as like, like one of the diff- yeah narrative one of collapse narrative collapse feel that is any <laughs> from Rush yeah. yeah. Well, he talks yeah. about you know going <laughs> like that. going from the cyclical sitcom to like the like these longer form narrative structures on television to like the like serialized dramas to like the reality TV show which yeah. claims which doesn't have the same pretense of story but it's also got the story like the forced narrative built into it like the, this is not what's actually going on on set at all you know and he's and he points to um the way like the the kind of games that we like rather than going from like uh team football which is very narrative and mythological to like extreme sports where it's like very fragmented and it's more about like performance or something. It's so you get that same thing going from Mario Brothers to Grand Theft Auto. Right, it's a big difference. That's a great actually. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. you know, uh, what would that be called? Like the opposite on the pole. You know, on yeah. one hand you have Super Mario and you have Grand Theft Auto. On the uh, other hand, but you know? I don't yeah. think it's evolution. I think it's more like creating of more and more new genres, like. There's now a story, there's games that's purely stories, and people call them walking simulators. There's no game 
element involved anymore. You're just walking along? It's like an augmented reality <laughs> type of trip or something. In the metaverse? Yeah. yeah, you just mm-hmm. kind of walk along and you discover little pieces of like things. It's like, oh yeah, there's this one note from someone in a book. But that's what a lot and, of these Zelda yeah, games are it. like too. I mean, yeah, except for the, there's, no, there's no even win condition or die condition, so... Right. But that's what I think why this guy, Miyamoto, was such a genius, was because even in the very first Zelda game, he has this exploration element. And that early Zelda game, it's no different than Pac-Man. It's just these boards, these screen boards that he strings together. But unlike the, the Pac-Man game, where it's the same thing over and over again, he strings all these boards together that you can actually explore. And they're called boards, you know, in the in this this video game. They're called thing. what? Boards. Spell them. Board, like B-O-A-R-D-S. Okay. So, like, Pac-Man is one board that you gotcha. go and you, you, you circumvent. You leave one side the or the other. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and, and then the original Zelda game, and so I actually got the original Zelda game, and you can get it, like, it's just, like, a few bucks now, like, you know, digital download on any one of these video game systems, and it's it's extremely primitive, you know, and I remember playing it as a kid, and, you know, it was different when I was a kid, but it actually is a lot like Pac-Man mm-hmm. and one of these early games, but it's it's... It's infinite. There's all these boards, and you can explore it in any direction you want, and you find things that you need on the journey. And it's it's because see, I started out. I got into video games again because I played the new Zelda game, Breath of the Wild, which to me was so fucking perfect and beautiful that it, like you actually feel like you're actually in this world. There's like wind conditions, and you have to actually eat food to survive, and you have to cook your own food, and you like live in this other this That's fantasy not world. Too much. It's like a chore. It's, but I mean, it is a chore. Some of there's a certain chore, amount of stress. But, there's, but we're trying to escape the stress. Right. But, but if you read like Gibson or Stevenson or Bert or Jeff Noon, it's like there's a there's an attraction to wanting to be in these hyper real environments. There's an ease, like a spiritual ease to like. It's like I'd rather fight for food in the Zelda world mm-hmm. than in this world because there's like a sense of gravitylessness. And, and everything is smoother than reality, and you actually get that effect that like um, that Gibson talks about, you know, like in, in his books in in playing these games. It's like actually yeah. there in those games, you know what I'm saying? But my point being is that the original Zelda game was really primitive, like Donkey Kong or like uh, uh, Pac-Man. But what was unique about what Miyamoto did was he strung all these boards together. So it's not just a it's not just a vertical board that you ascend to the top or circumambulate, but it's it's horizontal. So there's many boards that you explore all these different environments, and you can explore them in any order you want. And then you beat you you win the game by like your own journey. You take your own pathway through it um, to to beat the game. And I didn't realize that that was already implicit in the very first Zelda game yeah. in the in the eighties, right? I mean, this is awesome. The metaphysics yeah. of video games. I'm enjoying this so much, I can't even stand it. But it's like, this, 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 it gets more and more nonlinear, though. I think it is, I think it is an evolution yeah. away from the narrative, where, like, the narrative games are becoming a smaller, like, like uh, a smaller fraction of the total games that are being made. Because, like, our, we're, we're sort of losing the plot as a civilization. Mm-hmm. I uh, you know, and yeah, it's a great, it's a great. How dare you say that? <laughs> <laughs> See, it's happening here. There are many plots. Now, <laughs> well, yeah. but okay, hold up. So I kind of want to connect this back to kind of the real life. So in a sense, like people are not completing their hero's journey in real life. They're stuck in these uh, just you know five to nine, nine to five jobs, and then. They go back to the video game to try to really. Well, this is an interesting that. question, though, because what is what does what does the hero's journey mean in in a world where we have to have nine to five jobs to survive? I mean, the hero's journey must be a fan, it, it must be something that exists at a meta level 
Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, I mean, this is even sort of Jungian in a sense that maybe we're not supposed to act out all these projections that, like, Jung, in the Red Book, he talks about how at one time in history that all these religious ideas had to be lived out in reality, that people mm-hmm. actually had to go out into the desert and the religious world was concrete. Everything was yeah. literalized, but that somehow there's been a separation from from that, and now it's more of it's the symbolic life he calls it. Mm-hmm. That you know we have to find analogs and symbols to individuate through our own, you know, like you know, which there, there's lots of problems with this idea. There's lots of problems with this idea. What this is crazy. So if you take this far enough into the future, you're gonna have video games that. That's gonna mimic, like, yeah, so more office lives, okay. and people are gonna enjoy the hell out of them. Yeah, you're playing. You're, you're just playing jobs. <laughs> you're just playing nine to five gig. But this is what we were talking about with Snowcrash. Sorry, kind of there if you're a drone operator. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, well, it's, it's going yeah. that way. Our favorite part of Snowcrash was just, was just the fact that um, that the main character lives in this tiny little domicile, but he owns this expensive real estate in the metaverse, you know, and, like, that's... He tunes into that, and that's, like... Now he bought his big thing on the strip. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, you know... That's kind of where we are. It's, like, I mean... Like, what does my real life look like outside of visualization? I mean, it's, like, it's, it's, it's a quiet, introverted life, but through these connections with you guys... And this is the first time we're all meeting in person. I've been talking to John for seven years, you know, and... Yeah. And it's like, but it, that there's this rich world in the digital, in the metaverse that, that we all have, you know, but like, but real life is not, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's like the hyper real is now, it's now where I think real life actually is now. And I hate that I'm saying that, but I'm just going with where I feel like things, like that just feels true, yeah. unfortunately. But we have, still have to figure out the problem of the body. Now we're back to the same Gnostic issues again and, and issues with the body. So there's nothing really original about what I'm saying, but. Well, now, how do you... Okay, two things. And they, they go together. And this is, you know, this is a question to you all. Even before you, you brought up this thing about Snow Crash, I was thinking about how strange it is. You know, talking about all the time that I've spent walking from place to place in Zelda. And yet I'm, like, reading... <laughs> I'm reading Snow Crash, and I'm like, yeah, they, like... The, YT, the, the skateboarder, she's, she's on a public access terminal to the metaverse... And she's sitting there with VR glasses on while a bunch of like pervs are like gathered around the phone booth looking at this this fifteen year old blonde in VR. And meanwhile, she's sitting there like walking an avatar miles and miles. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that doesn't make any None sense. None of that's necessary. Yeah. And I was like, right. that doesn't. What the fuck is all that about? Right. But then, if you get if, if, what you're saying is well, that why, why, is, why is it not necessary? Well, I mean, it's it's because there's an accelerating pace. There's a hyperlink. You can just connect to where you need to yeah, go. Yeah, like in the digital world, but then there's no go anywhere. Exactly. Right. Yeah, but if you're it, but, but like if you're paying to access a terminal, then you would expect that. There like there's there's yeah. all these there's all these things about that book that for oh, me I've been I've been thinking that's that's a you know that's the previous sort of electronic uh, substrate looking at this one and trying to make sense of it. You know, but like the one saying, thing right. that that Stevenson missed was that we would be so rushed all the fucking time. You know, and that we wouldn't right. we wouldn't sit there right. and walk right. through. We wouldn't walk through a terminal that somebody developed, and 
But unless you're playing a video game, because like, you're like, well, Zelda, no, you get a travel. You fast travel, 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 travel with Skyrim. They want yeah. that type of stuff. You don't want to just walk the same world all. Well, you got to like upgrade until the fact that, until you can and fly. And there's warping too, and all these yeah. things as well. But yeah. I mean, but the idea is that in Snow Crash, it's like you can get from one domain to another. But instead of like just a hyperlink that gets you there, like the, like and the guy, the, the narrator. Or he's not the narrator, but the main character actually like designs these like spaces in between, and it's like a big thing. Like people want to walk through these spaces, you know, make it as real as possible. You know what I'm saying? But you're right. It's like with the time crunch that we have, no one would actually want to do that. You know what I'm saying? But so here's the question: mm-hmm. so Or you like, want to do it the first time, but not anymore. Like I think in Diablo three, they have an option for you to suddenly level up to like level eighty or whatever in like half an hour. Or like even Kevin Kelly says that. You know, he had this whole thing about the tiny screen on stuff like Google Glass and how he felt like if you if you actually read through uh, like sprays where you read one word at a time, you can read like five, ten times faster than you can read a page. What are sprays? Well, it's just like where it's just like one word at a time popping up on the okay. screen. Yeah. You know, Google just like glass. Yeah. So you can actually read a book like in Google Glass like three times faster mm-hmm. than you can read a normal book. Yeah. Um, and and there's something where Kevin Kelly was talking about how he always in, he always felt like rather than a desktop like that we got stuck in this model of like having a, like the desktop is this landscape to explore when in reality it, it should be that you just got this one timeline of information and then you're just sort of going into or out of it mm-hmm. like like the uh, so like the Apple Time Machine kind of combines those two oh. things, and you get this oh, weird, shit. this weird. So what's the Apple Time Machine? Where it's like you, where you can cruise through multiple different backups, like uh, you know, like you're, you can look at your desktop from like a month ago. Or your oh desktop right, from and, and you're like, yeah, right. Yes, yeah, right, so you're right. shifting from the lateral plane to the temporal plane. Yeah, and so rather than you have a plane here, you just have like one thread. You just kind of go in. Right, and so it seems. It seems to me like the reconciliation is in our that that like trying to spatialize things online, uh, and then the problem that you get into the problem of the body, you know, like trying to make right. a copy of space is it's just like well it's it's it doesn't it doesn't need to obey that logic. It's like putting wood paneling on the backdrop of your like on, on your computer background. It's like it's not really wood. You know, it's not wood. You know, they're right. skewmorphic. Right. But I like to think that it's weird. We all do. I mean, mm-hmm. It affects yeah. your online purchasing uh, choices. Right, and then it goes back to this. About, yeah, so, like, so if you look at culture, uh, right? I mean, Cialdini's research, I think one of the things he brought up is if you're selling sofas online and if you... If you have a background picture of clouds, they want to think about something comfortable. But if you have a background <laughs> picture of like gold coins, they'll think about can I make this buy something cheaper rather than something more comfortable. Hmm. I like the reference to clouds. Michael's working yeah, on a, yeah, a, a poetry yeah. masterpiece. Oh yeah, called clouds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like he's trying to wave me down. For that, you right? people listening to this, he's trying to wave me down. But the fact of the matter is, it's a, it's a fucking masterpiece. We were reading it the other night, uh, all three of us. Oh, yeah, it was so trippy. Like, <laughs> you don't yeah. even need any mushrooms. <laughs> exactly, yeah. What did you say? It was like, um, lists, explosions, and flows. flows. Yeah. Lists, explosions, and flows, right? That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. I don't know, you just, yeah. you just, how did you get So, that? okay, so you I can't wave it away, because now we're talking about it, and otherwise it'll just be, uh, you know, a tease 
to people. So okay, I can talk a little bit about it. Sure, yeah. if it pegs into this whole conversation, yeah, it actually, well, it does. It right? does. There's yeah. a lot of yeah. video yeah. games. Totally. One of the things I'm trying to incorporate in my poetry is there's a lot of like pulling out pop culture references and and sort of incorporating that into into what you would think of as a formal verse is actually a construction of different pop culture references and you know this sort of Burroughsian type of cut and paste type of thing, but it's not quite cut and paste because there's a, it's a lot more deliberate than it's not quite random. And I, I wish it was more random, but I, I'm too um, neurotic, I guess, to leave everything to chance. So I really do construct everything very deliberately. But um, but yeah, but there's a lot of um, pop culture references, rock and roll lyrics, and songs that I liked growing up, cereal boxes. And Meow Wolf, uh, me and you came across this one display that had all these cereal boxes that we saw as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like kicks and, and oh, pops and tricks. Uh, and that's the whole section I of the clouds where I have all this whole thing where yeah. these cumulus clouds are made out of different cereal boxes, <laughs> you know, like tricks and kicks and pops. And it's this sort of like this, these corporate clouds that mm-hmm. create these amazing singularities, you know. And then you feel ambivalent about them because on the one hand, they're incredible works of art, but on the other hand, there's like a, an invisible um, plane that makes that possible, or there's resources that are being drained, and a whole thing that's happening to make these singularities that, you know, is the thing that, you know, even just like playing these video games that I forget about, all the, the electricity that goes into all these things, and being hooked into this electronic grid, and it's just, it's tricky, man, it's really tricky, you know? But anyway, so so clouds in this, you know, you're really you are talking about the sort of hypermodern thesis that we're uploading everything. Yeah, the 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 Western global imaginary as the cloud. Yeah. But then, but okay, so but isn't that you know isn't it and and keep going? I can't remember <laughs> no, I'm just giving you all. But isn't it isn't this like? Am I alone in thinking that this is basically, in some more accurate sense, what Rudolf Steiner talks about, like the descent of Aramon, and that it's it's basically See, like this we're, we're mistaking we're mistaking right. this uh, you know, know this attempt to reproduce the transcendent with the imminent, but there's so much for trans- the transcendent. There's so much opportunity for actual transcendent experience within it, like just like my experience with playing Zelda. How much I, I actually read uh, some guy wrote uh, just like a. A blog about how Zelda helped him with depression. This was a, suicide, a guy who was suicidally depressed, and he got Breath of the Wild, and he just he he was going through a horrible breakup. He had lost his job. He was a, this guy was about to commit suicide, mm-hmm. and then somehow or other he got Breath of the Wild on the Switch, and he started playing this game, and he fell in love with Hyrule, that's the, the Zelda world, and he talks about just playing this game, going on this hero's journey, and doing the whole thing, and it just changed his whole life, like it, like like. It made me think that there's still an opportunity, even in these arimonic um, manifestations, for the transcendent. Well, we're not Which, at the bottom. But but, that's, <laughs> but that but even that is Steinerian, right? I mean, even yeah. Steiner thought that all these things, you know, like the Christ image for Steiner, the Christ is between Lucifer and Arimon, right? He's 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 it's between both. I mean, we need both. I mean, Lucifer tempts us into higher worlds, and I actually think I disagree with Daniel Pinchbeck, by the way, that. Uh, the UFO phenomena is an Arimonic phenomena. It's so totally okay to disagree with Daniel Pinchbeck. Well, because Pinchbeck has this whole thing where he thinks that the UFO phenomena is all Arimonic, but I think that our UFO phenomena is Luciferian, and I think that the UFO phenomena is they're temp- that they're it's the Luciferian spirit that's tempting us into higher worlds, and they, and every time you have a UFO phenomena, it it gives human beings ideas about technologies that they can invent 
or you know new possibilities that they can manifest and and the, and the, the beings that you see in these UFO phenomena that they're, they're luciferic spirits that they they give you information about higher worlds and stuff like that but you could make the case that that um, they are kind of keeping you trapped in in material I don't know, dude. I'm, I'm getting... Well, I mean, it's like, to the extent that we're seeing it as a binary, we're going to see it as a conspiracy. Well, that's Steiner. Right? Like, we're going to... That's Steiner's binary. Like, if you're Phil Dick, eventually you get to the point where you're like, well, there have to be two. There has to be a light side and a dark side, and they have to be sort of in this, like, eternal fight that actually makes them sort of lovers, like the, you know, like the dinosaurs right. that died fighting, and it's like... They didn't even know dude, each other. I just thought that you're a paleontologist, man. I wanted to yeah. be a paleontologist. Robert Baker. Well, yeah, I was a kid too. Our banker was my idol. Was yeah, that was funny when you said that. I was like, what? Garfield Apprentice. I was actually, I was actually just trying to get a hold of him. Speaking of people who, have, as a you know, as a uh, Pentecostal preacher, desert patriarch who taught the Bible in the original Talmud, like Hebrew. Uh, he Baker did. Ba- yeah, Bacher, Bacher, because he's Dutch. But he, but he. Did you with the Cowboys? He's impossible to get a hold of. Yeah. Well, he's it's it's uh he's on a registry actually of Dutch American ce- oh, like celebrity I figures like people know. that okay. people right. that, that the Netherlands can claim. I'm just used like to the, the caricature like in the Jurassic Park. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The sequel, the, the second one where the caricature dimmed. The right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, they uh, but he's yeah he's like he. I called the Natural History Museum at, in Houston mm-hmm. to, to see if I could find a way to get a hold of him because it's been years and I'd love to talk to him. And uh, the email address that they have for him bounces, and they don't have his email, and they don't like they don't. The grid. It's like they yeah no he's like they can't get a hold of him like if he's he's either there or he's not you know and so he's with the dinosaurs now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's got the uh, you know he, there and there is this thing where I feel like he's actually kind of closer to the Judeo Christian desert patriarch wandering Jew type vibe. So um, yeah, I mean, whereas, like, we're all sitting around trying to reconcile, you know, like, how do we find transcendence hanging out in our concrete boxes? That's yeah, this whole so, conversation. So I guess he's actually the, the Taoist kind of hermit sage, and we're still Confucian. Yeah, I think in a sense. It's huh. like that, yeah. Well, Confucian was late civilization, right? So he would be the opposite. Uh, of no, they were like, no, they were like, that was like the hundred schools was going on. So we, we've lost it all. Like, like I was Lao saying last night, it's all been burned. Well, so, was Confucius and Lao Tzu contemporaneous? Yeah, uh, just about. Yeah, yeah. pretty, oh, pretty okay. much. I, I think Confucius had just become famous before Lao Tzu. Oh, okay. And that's what pissed him off. So, <laughs> Lao Tzu was very, you know, the whole idea of, of the Confucian ideas is Ren, right? The, mm-hmm. You're the courtly, benevolent gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, uphold all the rites and the rituals and do everything properly. Is it doesn't for Confucius? It, you know, it didn't matter whether. Um, you believed in the gods or not. What mattered was that you did the ritual correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter whether you have a metaphysical oh, investment. Yeah. Just do the ritual correctly and it'll uphold society because Chinese civilization at this period had gone through a bunch of civil wars. Kind of reminds me of Peterson in a way. I was just yeah. thinking that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so, so who's, who is the Lao Tzu to Jordan Peterson? Uh, McKenna, probably. McKenna, <laughs> Terrence McKenna. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody's got to show up now uh, and walk out. You know, and I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's supposed to happen uh, in the other order, McKenna than Peterson. Yeah, maybe. 
That, you know what's interesting is that you know McKen- uh, um, Peterson had the same post at uh, is it Harvard as Timothy Leary. They actually had the same job, mm-hmm. really. Um, and, yeah, and, there, and there's actually there's some similarities b- between them. Um, okay, Leary maybe tune, you know drop out. I mean, I there mean, it is. Isn't well, it? actually, the message. no, but in, the, by similarities I mean that it's like um, it's like Mc, uh, Peterson is. Complete is, is like revising. He's critiquing Larry's message in a way. Larry's message, is, right? It's drop out. It's just like, a, mm-hmm. and but it's interesting that they have the same post. That they're both. But they are both really brilliant psychologists. Yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, I just think that that's interesting. And they both had the same effect on the youth. You know, like Larry turned on this whole generation, and so to Peterson, he turned on a whole generation. I mean, and what were the odds that they would have the same? Uh, is it Har- it's Harvard, right? Well, I know uh, he's from Toronto. No, but he had a post. Yeah, he was. He had a post at Harvard. I don't know if it was. I think it was Harvard. It was the same. And he talked about this. I had this. I actually he in an interview. He was like, "Yeah, I actually had the same post as Timothy Leary." And you know, how strange is that? Or you know, that is very strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially if you're willing to indulge the aesthetic curiosity Mm -hmm. that the 1960s and the 20 teens. Are under very similar uh, Pluto Uranus aspects and like mm-hmm. and uh, like Saturn Pluto stuff also and like you know uh, Jung born under a Saturn Pluto conjunction uh, Becca Tarnas talked about that on, right I remember on that. the show mm-hmm. and then there's, that there's this thing that there's a there's a uh, it's written in the sky that there's a there's a power conflict between established order and revolutionary order mm-hmm. that Peterson shows up in these things. Well, I mean, just the fact that he rose to power at this well, time that's sure. that's yeah. astrologically very similar to the time that Tim Leary rose to public yeah. dominance. Yeah, right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's, so, yeah, there's right. so many right. cycles in history. Like, that's this med- That's right. Yeah, I thought yeah. this book was so right. cool. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this also reminds me of uh, the fourth turning. This is the crack hours book you're, you're well, it's, it's Well, it's a collection of articles by different uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Just so the listener knows. Yeah, what, what yeah. this is history, big history and meta history, which is put out by Santa Fe Institute and uh, looked really cool. I mean, uh, I, edited by David Krakauer at Al. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you would benefit from it, I think, mm-hmm. but I mean, I don't, you know, maybe. You're John Ebert, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure no. what that means. I don't know either. I'm just no, <laughs> imagine it's being John Malkovich. Yeah, it, 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 it means you're slightly John. Being, that's one of my all-time favorite movies. It's a great movie. It right. means you're slightly more well positioned to tell us where we are on the cycle. Oh, in the cycle. Yeah. Well, there, there's I mean, a lot of good debates about like his, what history is and like what like histor- the difference between historians and um, what was the other kind of scientist like. Uh, yeah, it's just the. Uh, there was some lot. I learned a lot of stuff just from reading it last trying night. To take a his, trying to take a look at history from a very interdisciplinary approach. But like, I didn't know about. But that's history. called meta history. I never yeah, thought yeah. of history as a discipline. I didn't realize like all these different things that are. Well, going no. On so, so meta history. Here, here's what they say from the book. By history, we mean the study chiefly and written records extending from the most ancient cuneiform tablets throughout the most re- recent emails and tweets. By big history, we mean all the reconstructions of the past that do not rely on written history. By meta history, we mean the patterns that emerge from both both modes of inquiry, which make generalization and hence analysis possible. Yeah. Hmm. So, 
Right. It's so meta history is what this podcast performs. Mm-hmm. But it surprises yeah, me that they're not actually fossils, right? Right, but it doesn't. It surprises me that they're not looking at it sort of horizontally across like the practice of history itself. I think this is what you were saying, oh. Michael. That practice of history itself is a, is a social activity. Like Historia was one of the nine muses. Mm. You know, it's oh, a creative okay. act. Right. It's listed on the fucking along there with music and painting and oh history. Oh. You know, oh this is a thing that we make. Oh. And so you'd think that you know, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I so one thing I got from that book, and I didn't know this before, was that I, apparently history, academically, history is is about um, texts, right? It's about tracing back texts, right? And then um, what was the other one? Deep history big is history. big is fossils. Mm. So it's you know that's fossils, and then meta history. I forgot. This is basically both. Meta history is both. But if you're going to, I feel there's an important uh, deconstruction here. In the what we consider texts, you know, because you now, have, now you're turning to the lose right here. Here we go. Well, the, well maybe no, so. I, love I, mean, it, man. I, I haven't read it. Right. You know, yeah. people have been talking about it for, you for read years, it. but I haven't read. You haven't had the Deleuze no. experience. No, I have <laughs> image, I have image and text. On I have the shelf. a book that you should. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a commentary on the Thousand Plateaus. It's really fun. Yeah, so it's not just the lose. It's also you. You got the your absences poems. You got the uh, lines and codes. Right, the lines, blows That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But so didn't you get that from Deleuze? Were, weren't you thinking of Deleuze? Um, when the you lines, the lines from Deleuze yeah. and the globes were slaughtered. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. and there's some other places. It's also Stevenson and Snowbrush. So writing the code. Scientific <laughs> method treats the five senses as a text. I like in the exact same way that that uh, like fundamentalist Christian treats the Bible as a text. Yeah. You know, like these, you up to a point, like you know, modernity does. Right. You know, it says, okay, we've got the five senses, and never mind that the five senses were actually like. Huh, that's there's the, there's all of these other senses, you know, like esalen is esalen. Vestibular is a right. sense as well. Yeah. All esalen yeah. counted sixteen for uh, Michael Murphy's The Future of the Body, and so it's like it's like those are the Gnostic. Well, gospels. The senses, you know? there. I think aren't they pretty much also lining up with the five aggregates in Buddhism? Ooh. Go on. I don't, I don't remember. What are they? Let me... <laughs> Meanwhile, he's looking them up. Okay, conversation got a side chain. So, John, tell us... Um, just tell us about you, man. I mean... Like in just a general, I existential mean, sense? Yeah. Who is John... Being John Davis? No, well, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Just a cultural I'm, critic. I mean, was, I started... You know, most of the time, I was, as a kid, I was trying to write fiction... And so I wrote fiction for years and years and years, and then by the time I was like in my twenties, mid twenties, I was like, I don't. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere with this. I have the imagination, but it's like, it, it doesn't seem new enough to me. Um, so I, I switched to. At that time, I had just gotten out of college, and the Joseph Campbell Foundation hired me to write footnotes for them. And um, so I was doing that, and I was like, I think I like nonfiction better, you know. And I wrote an essay about Robinson Jeffers. Campbell's favorite poet, and still one of my favorites. And was he a British poet? Extremely underappreciated. No, California. Oh, he comes from the same world as Steinbeck. Um, they lived not that far away from each other. It's the whole Steinbeckian California world, and, and Jefferson's favorites were Spangler and uh, the Golden Bough. Oswald Spangler? Yeah, Oswald Spangler and, and, Fraser. and Fraser's Golden Bough, and then he was trying to incorporate those ancient myths and just Regular, average, ordinary people living in, you know, out in California in the Salinas right. Valley, you know, 
It's, it's amazing. But anyway, yeah. so I wrote the piece. And I was like, um, the, the editor uh, that I sent it to was like, you're really good at this. I think you should do this, not your fiction. And <laughs> <laughs> so he was, you're still a friend to this day, despite that statement. No, I mean, uh, LaBelle, John LaBelle, just an amazing individual. But, um, so yeah, so then I converted to, because it seemed more interesting to analyze what's gone wrong with culture, what's mm. gone wrong with civilization. Why, right. you know, once I read Spangler, I, I sort of, it was an epiphany, and I realized something's not right about this, that what we're doing is not right. We're in this highly artificial, hyper-civilized mode, and you know nobody has any interest in physics or death or the afterlife. Or it's like, how, how did we lose all of that? Because those are the ideas that build civilizations. You have to have metaphysical ideas like reincarnation and the, the, the belief in, in God or a God. That, that's what builds a civilization. And so we're at, we're just at a point where it doesn't uh, seem like we're in touch anymore with any of those metaphysical archi, you know, those ruling principles that code for the phenomenal world uh, that ends up, you know, in the banal sense of engineers having ideas. I'll do this building. I'll do that building. But really, I mean, there's a, there's a, a civilizational superego that's working through everyone, and, and they're each one of them is performing a specific task to make this happen. And they're sort of naive about it. But it has to get done, so you have to have these types of guys. But, I mean, we've lost the metaphysics, though. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I, I want to bring back the metaphysics. I, you know, it's like, why do we have to let that go? I don't want to let it go. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I, I feel that. It's almost like a phenomenological kind of experience while I'm hanging out with you guys or my computer science or engineering friends. It's like a completely different vibe. Where it's almost like an altered mode of consciousness, even in a different uh, kind of mental state space. So, does it? You know, do we lose the metaphysics and then we lose the narrative? Yeah, like the narrative is sort of yeah, because that's that's exactly what happens, and, and that's why the society disintegrates and enters into a period where the noise is getting more than the information. So the the signal to noise ratio ratio is such that. Uh, the noise is just drowning out the signal, yeah. and you you can't hear it anymore. And once that happens, the whole society just disintegrates, well, pulls apart. That's but it's good that it does it because it had spent at least a thousand years virtualizing and realizing and actualizing metaphysical ideas in the concrete world. But there's only so much of that before the idea gets uh, semantically depleted. Mm. And once it gets depleted, you can't tap into those archai anymore. They're not speaking to you. It's like you can't hear the muses anymore. And once they go silent, that's it for that civilization. But you have to, it keeps going for a while because you have to provide food for the masses and the people are coming in from the countryside uprooted and so forth. So it, it keeps going in a practical it's sense. The civilization. But eventually, yeah, the civilization. But eventually it's, it's, it's going to start all over again and you'll start getting some weird sect. See, or cult somewhere saying, "Yes, yes, yes." And then it becomes a religion, we're like Christianity. Create did. some new, yeah, and something. You got a new civilization. All the ingredients are right for us. Yeah, it's like so trippy. Yeah. We're we're on this perpetual kind of cycle throughout time, where we're transforming the metaphysical into the material. 
Well, that's okay. the virtual to the actual. But that's again, what we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. Again, what you're saying, uh, Michael, about the, the sort of unrealized background layer of all of this, the electrical use, you know, Kevin Kelly challenges the ephemeralization again uh, because he's like, yeah, the, the, the face of it, the toy part of it is getting smaller and smaller. Mm. You know, your phone is now this sleek little thing. You know, instead of, like, my buddy Buddha Bomb gave, has been giving these presentations on the history of electronic music and its effect on consciousness. And he talks about the original synthesizer was like 200 tons, filled the entire room. The object itself is a, uh, the face of it is getting smaller and smaller, but it's actually part of a larger and larger network that's eaten more and more of the planet. So is it like a hyper-object? Yeah, yeah, like the, the, the technology as a hyper-object... When it, we're, that's why we're confused. It's because the objects are getting smaller. The objects are getting more ephemeral. It's interesting. You talked about subminiaturization and new media invasion. Oh, yeah, yeah, the miniaturization process. Uh, Tom, Thompson was but, talking about that but it's before. Like, it's really kind of like a sea salt kind of thing or, or like some sort of transforming, flipping kind of triangle where you see the big picture, but there's not much data, but then you see the tiny screen. There's a whole bunch of data behind it that you need to kind of go through that portal to access well, right, but I mean, the the thing is that that most of us are still thinking about the object and not the object what's as behind the object. yeah, not what's behind it, not the whole network of stuff that's supporting this. Most people aren't even aware that their phones aren't doing most of the things that they're doing online. That's being sent right. to corporate servers to be processed. I'm, I'm actually I'm reading about that. Right now. <laughs> I'm actually reading this amazing book uh, uh, about this so, guy Tong. So, Q, you might be able to help me with uh-huh. the name. Tong Hui Hu? Yeah, Tong Hui Hu. He wrote this book called A Prehistory of the Cloud. I've been mean, reading this today, and it's all about different ways of imagining the Internet. And, you know, at one time there was this theory that the Internet was imagined as a way to uh, survive an atomic bomb. So they, ima- they thought that the Internet could be shaped in a decentralized way because Hiroshima and Nagasaki you have the centralization of power that can be, you can bomb that because it's all centralized in the city. And so they thought, well, what if we distributed our power network in this sort of rhizomatic way mm-hmm. and that way it, it, you can't attack one city. Would, so so they, were still, doing, they were already thinking of this? when Well, no, afterwards. <coughs> so what he says in this book, he debunks that and he says, well, it turns out that, that this one media theoretician had this idea that the internet Mm-hmm. was a response to the atomic bomb mm-hmm. and was trying to build a shape that could be distributed among all these networks mm-hmm. that couldn't be centrally attacked the way that, that the way that these cities were with the nuclear bomb. But it turns out that, that that wasn't actually the case, or that's not actually what happened. And his whole book is about how, and this is what's interesting, it's my, the Cloud's poetry, and I found this book after I'd already been, like, almost finished the book of Cloud's, mm-hmm. but this whole book is about different fantasies we have about the Internet different metaphor landscapes that we use to configure it. And and so this is totally what I'm trying to do with poetry. This guy actually has made explicit in this book, you know. Are you going to publish Clouds this year, do you think? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I want to. Okay. I have to find a way. Can I read a little piece off the back yeah, of this? Sure. The, yeah. It's crazy. This is exactly what we were talking about. We, we may imagine the digital cloud as placeless, mute, ethereal, and unmediated, Yet the reality of the cloud is embodied in thousands of massive data centers, any one of which can use as much electricity as a mid-sized town. <laughs> in this book, Tong Hui Hu examines the gap between the real and the virtual in our understanding of the cloud. 
shows that the cloud grew out of older neural networks such as railroad tracks, sewer lines, and television circuits, countering the popular perception of a new cloud-like political power that is dispersed mm-hmm. and immaterial. He argues that the cloud grafts digital technologies onto older ways of exerting power over a population. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so this actually makes Pretty cool, right? Yeah, so this actually sounds like uh, the Square and the Tower by Neil Ferguson. He talked about all these uh, hidden networks that were affecting history. We think of uh, modern history as network-based, but actually extends back into uh, pretty far, these social networks. Have you guys read that article uh, that came out on The New Yorker last week, or a a couple weeks ago? It was... uh, the architects of the internet apologize, and it was like all the all the people who were, you know, major players. Not all of them, but a dozen different interviews that they published independently of this like uh, sort of composite interview hmm. about the history of Web 2.0 specifically, and and the idea that we could make the web free to people by using ad revenue model, you know, and like freemium services. And they basically said, we had no idea that what was going to happen was that it was going to become like a real-time behavior modification panopticon. We fucked up, and we're sorry, and we kind of don't know how to fix it. You know, like, and just like here it is, apologizing and and, technological invention. When does that ever happen? And specifically to loop back to the whole thing about Aramon and Lucifer, there is, you know, what they basically said was, it turns out that the best way to keep somebody's attention is to keep them outraged, and and that and that these systems are designed in order to keep our attention to out to to upset us. And that we, the more upset we get, the more compulsively we, we respond, the more we get involved. And it's like even the best of us have succumbed to trolling. And why? <laughs> what, like, what are we doing when we when we press the little mad face? I've on done Facebook? my share of trolling. The yeah. mad face <laughs> on Facebook. You know, this upsets me. Well, it's like, well, why do you even have those, man? Well, because <laughs> it's better. Because it's better than it's like the whole Zelda thing. Better to go through a whole landscape, right? Than it yeah, is to just okay. go through the linear screen. Adding more complexity, more more uh, color palette. More yeah, give us some damn options. options. If you're going to upload me, more fractal edges. Me in HD. Got to get more fractal. Yeah, yeah. those fuzzy edges. Dude, that's what that fucking oh. meow wolf was all about. Did, did, we made oh, a cube discovered the secret to that house. Did, do you know this? Okay, okay, you got to set the stage a little bit about meow wolf's house of eternal return. <laughs> for people, well, so you that probably could do that better than me. I got claustrophobic. I had to leave. <laughs> okay, so we actually found. We actually yeah. found a secret in Meow Wolf that actually explains what it actually is. Like we found a secret document mm-hmm. in a safe. This is how cool this fucking Meow Wolf thing is. We yeah. found, and he found a computer yeah, next to the safe. So I'm reading the document <laughs> and he's trying to hack the computer. <laughs> and we put together. Right. I can just see the two of you doing but, this. And and don't let these guys in this place. It's exactly like you think. I'm reading it to him and he's like, shut up, I'm hacking. I'm like, wait, no, And he's like, he's like talking about this crazy shit. And I'm reading crazy shit. So they made like, their own uh, operating system. So it's their own uh, distro of Linux. And it's it looks like Ubuntu, but it's not. And they changed the whole bunch of apps in there. So Chromium browser, it's now turning to a, some, what is it called? The Charter, and it just has a completely different interface. So and the, the Charter uh, is apparently yeah, a even the terminal, You open a terminal, and you can't actually perform the normal terminal functions. You can only lift 
you can only list out the file files, but you can't access them from terminal. I took some interesting. So again, this is what I found. So there was a safe next to the computer, and there was a document in there that was supposed to be locked away, and apparently that house experienced some kind of anomaly, like a black hole. Because well, you, know, you know, there's a house, right? Yeah, there's a house. So okay, so folks, this is this is an old bowling alley in Santa Fe. That uh, George R. R. Martin gave five million dollars to this, this like this psycho team of of maker artists that uh, came up with this place, and they're they're building another one in Denver that's going to have a totally different theme, and I guess also one in Las Vegas, and every one of these locations is going to have a completely different world and story, and uh, it's it's interesting. My friend Annie Phillips works for the Denver one, and uh, we had a really interesting conversation about the way in which Meow Wolf sort of represents a hypermodern art. Well, she didn't actually yeah. use the word hypermodern, but which is like annihilation. John Rogers. Yeah, we're talking about oh, comparing it to annihilation. Oh, the shimmer. The okay, shimmer is yeah, happening yeah. in the house. I'm going to read you this in a minute. Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> right. yes, but I mean, her thing was that it was like, it was a, an issue of pressing ethical or moral concern for her yeah. because even though you can. She was like, "This is basically what it boils down to." And Annie, this is the founder of Meow. Oh no, no, no! Just my friend that works for them, I, and sorry. and is really good at. Um, you know, she's she's a she she's actually the first person to talk to me about Deleuze, and she was like, "You you need to read Deleuze in 2010." And I was like, yeah. uh, "Well, I'll get to it." I agree with her, but yeah. <laughs> um, but she she said to me that um, the thing about it is that she's a really serious and like morally concerned person, and she was like. It's getting to this point with modern art, uh, and that she feels like Meow Wolf sort of represents the pinnacle of that, where it doesn't seem to have a meaning unto itself. You know, that it's that it's been emptied of any sort of semantically depleted. Yeah. She didn't find the safe. But (laughs) (laughs) that changed everything. Right. Now you got a narrative. I I found the narrative. There is a narrative. It makes sense. Okay, so but last thing I want I want to hear this. Last thing is that she said, but here's the thing, is that Anyone in the world can come into this place and be altered by it. She's like, like she's like, that's even, aggressive too. It's well, like, come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Well, it was. Yeah, well, I mean, anyway. It's more like it's, it's nice in it's here. More like she was impressed by how, uh, you know, she finds it. She finds it. She does a lot of like business development stuff, and she's like, I find it so easy to sell people on the idea of a place like this mm-hmm. because. Even the most sort of like stodgy businessmen walk into these spaces and are turned into chi- like children. Yeah, they're blown away and they're, yeah, they're like reduced to, to rubble. Yeah. Human <laughs> devastation. <laughs> we got brain cell. No, I, because I'm not, you know, that's what it did to me. I got over. Well, yeah, he had to leave. He only got half of it. Yeah, so you know, I tried to. I was surprised I went that far. That's actually a good. Sign. I mean, yeah. What well, like, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Donald Trump and put them into the office and make them live in there yeah, well, for for, for like a month and film that as reality TV? That reminds Donald me. Donald Trump is a character straight <coughs> out of the fucking Meow Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> we found a bunch of rooms that have these cartoonish oh characters. Like, I that's like one of the best quotes I've ever heard ever I mean, <laughs> about Trump. Well, he is sort of like that the the bear. From Annihilation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good, too. Dude, that bear freaked me out, man. Yeah, we were talking about that's the bear. That's the scariest the, the other thing day we were talking about the bear. For anyone... Okay, spoiler alert. There's a scary bear in Annihilation. Wait, but I have to get back to the fucking... Yeah. I want to read... That's, that's all I'm going to say. I want to read you the Meow Wolf documents about the house. Okay, I want one yeah, document. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. One document. Yeah, right. yeah. So I found this in the safe. So if you ever go to Meow Wolf, there's, it's actually a house, but then this house has like these portals into this other dimension that are somehow intersecting with the house. But apparently in the house, there's like a home office and there's a safe. And I found these documents in there, and I'm going to read you just the, one, the, the very first page of the document. It says, Effective immediately, you are the custodian of the Selig Pastor house. For the safety of the multiverse, we isolated the home from its native dimension. The home is quarantined within an abandoned bowling alley in a small desert city. This is, of course, not ideal, but it was the best we could do on such short notice. The home had to be removed immediately for reasons you will soon witness for yourself. The house in question was initially located in Mendocino, California. It was the site of a disaster, a complete breakdown of the structures that keep the multiverse orderly and safe. The family who lived there were bloodliners, creatures of the anomaly. On March 17th, 2016, their creative powers caused a class one break. The Seligs perverted the laws of time and space to recall a child who had passed from the material realm. This reminds me of the movie Poltergeist. For some reason. Yeah, okay. yeah. The home collapsed into chaos when the child returned. The memories and emotions of the family were made manifest. These pocket dimensions cling to the house like parasites, and for the time being, we are unable to sever them from the proper reality. You are to search. You are to pocket keep the house dimensions. safe. So now it gives you a task. Right? You are to keep the house safe. Prevent it from collapsing further into chaos and disorder. Search the home for information about the missing family and report back to us. We will send a team of specialists to you shortly. That is all. The charter. That's great. And so the charter is so hypermodern. It's not yeah, even funny. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I basically tried to access the computer, right? And the charter program was like giving me some shit. Like whenever I would, I try to open up certain files, it's like. You're not supposed to do this. And then one time I try to save something or to try to restart the computer, I think. It says, no, this this is, you're really not allowed to do this. We're going to get you for it. This really is the first uh, interactive installation that I've heard of that addresses both uh, like interdimensional travel in a concrete way, like going into the refrigerator and right. into the fucking yeah. multiverse port, and then, that, and then also in the sense of like you're actually like, what other articles have any of you ever heard of where there was an option to hack a computer? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where like somebody right. actually wrote yeah, this like, OS for you. Yeah, for you, you probably, dude. It was right. just for him. Too. Like, like no, they totally blew me off. This door is dude, closed. He's like, I'm gonna hack this only computer. for you. <laughs> and I'm looking at this, this whole manuscript, and I'm like, uh, Q, and then we're in different. Like we became like ourselves in this fucking experiment. <laughs> he's hacking the computer. I'm looking at this manuscript. It's like fucking weird, man. Well, and like annihilation, that sort of strips you down to you know. You're the, you know, the therapist, the hacker, you know, like they're doing the, right. the psychologist, the geologist, like yeah. you sort of become these, as, uh, as, you become, as you yeah. become less specifically your sonotypes, I just came up with a term. It's good. I like yeah. We, you just coined it. I just coined neologism. A neologism. Right in the middle of persona type. <laughs> well, that's okay. Because now you know, now you got it yeah. time stamped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I got the threat for that. But so royalties. so, where do you where do you take this? Like it seems like in both of these cases, there's this, and this is I think true also sort of in spiritual practice. Like they talk about with the enneagram that the more deeply, uh, or the, like the more integrated you become in your own type, the more you become released from that type, and and the more you uh, become the entire enneagram. 
you know, and that seems that's true also of the zodiac. That you know, all of us contain the entire. And so, depending on, I mean, it's different to the degree that these various things, the angle or whatever, the intensity to which they're related. But in the Indra's net sense, you are in fact reflecting all of them. But then there's this like unhealthy sense. I like that. The Indra's net connection with it. There's this unhealthy sense in which the, um, you know, like in Annihilation, and I'm, I've warned everyone in the intro to this show that we're going to spoil absolutely everything we talk about, including Meow Wolf. Well, we have but, to. Yeah. How <laughs> else are we going to talk because, about? Because, <laughs> because, sorry, most of the people listening to this, this shit's been around for thousands of years, right? right. So, right. Right. Um, <laughs> and you it's a future fossil. Yeah. Fuck you. Right. Don't knock it. It's a creating of a future fossil. If you still have a problem with me spoiling <laughs> Annihilation, then we don't need to know each other. Future fossil, by the way, just for the record, is like one of the best names for a podcast I've ever heard. Yeah. I think everyone right, agrees. Right. Right. And, he's a, and he's a paleontologist. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what so, that makes it even I awesomer. I put that together. You know? yeah. The yeah. most yeah. awesome thing about Future Fossils is that it's also the name of a rap group out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, you're kidding. And yeah. when we contacted them about trying to politely acquire their Twitter name from their unused yeah. Twitter profile, we got the nastiest, like... It was like the most insane, rude gangster shit. I could not believe it. And so ever since then, there's been this undercurrent of, uh, like, testosterone. Like, I must beat their social metrics. Like, <laughs> you know, like, so the thing is, that however great the name <laughs> is, it, there is, you know, it, again, it's, it's in the net, right? It, right. Reflects, it reflects all of them. And so, like, it, you know, you see the entire, to, to use a integral, you know, spiral dynamics kind of thing, you see the whole spiral mm-hmm. in it. And so there's, there is a red... There's an ego component in there still. Which, I like that. You know, I mean, wasn't that more like Cowan, though? I mean, didn't he kind of take that spiral dynamics idea from Claire Graves? and uh, Yeah. Cowan? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. And Numerous yeah. numerous modes of integral thought. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not calling Ken out specifically on that one. But, like... Um, Wait a minute, Ken who? Wilbur. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, <laughs> da-da, da-da, da-da. But, uh, well, I've never had him on the show. And, <laughs> that would be um, cool, man. We should he doesn't do shit like this. I wish you right? I, I, I got him. I actually, I did interview Ken about eight years ago, or no, ten years ago now, uh, before I had a podcast, and that's up on uh, evolution.bandcamp.com. This is the skin of the game right here, you're saying. Yeah. And <laughs> that in that interview... I pressed and pressed and pressed to get him to say something of, of meaning about what integral art would look like in his model. And he was very evasive. And ultimately, like, the one thing that came out in an hour of conversation was what he called complex coherence. Like, he, he hasn't exposed himself to that much art, really. So he can't talk about it, but I think he knows integral art. And due to his credit, I think he knows integral art when he sees it. But what he said, complex coherence would be, like... I asked him specifically, so is Tool, the band Tool, a good example of this? Because they're capable, or like in general, metal, actually. It's a good band, Tool. Like all all metal, um, in some sense, is capable of this because you have to channel this extraordinary, like intense emotion and yet remain like dispassionate enough to shred at the same time. You gotta get the whole picture. Yeah, he gives that, it's Buddhist. It's like holding the whole right once. So yeah, that really reminds me of the meditation experience. Really, a lot of people think meditation is just about being calm, but really, like one of the books I read on meditation, what it says is like really you need to almost feel like you're a tiger stalking a prey, and you're just you just got that life or death kind of sharpness. You're, it's like, and it's like a lot of it's like really edgy. And this was a cues card today. Was this uh, tiger? 
It's uh, there's this other article. Oh, the Princess of Wands. And what what tarot is this? This is a uh, Crowley deck. Oh, so yeah, so you're showing them the Alistair Crowley's tarot, and yeah. he drew the Princess of Wands, which features a woman with a tiger. Yeah, and he was stalking the tiger, stalking its prey. Yeah, Parvati. She yeah, she was uh, right. she 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 rides a tiger. That's uh, Julius Caesar. Julius uh, Caesar. You know, I want to make sure the footnote is right. Is this Parvati then, uh, John? That, well, that's that's, that's, that's more of a lion. That is a lion for lots. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that would be Sibylle. Sibylle wrote the lion. Because yeah, so you got Parvati with the tiger and Sibylle. This podcast, you can have, to but get, that makes sense actually because the lion and tiger represent the two ecological zones, but they're yeah. both intimations of the same archetype. Right. And you're gonna have to do a visual. Uh, you're gonna have to do a visual. Podcast. Oh yeah, at some point. Yeah. You know, well, well, this actually, this part would be really. This part would be suitable to a mm-hmm. symbolic, mm-hmm. you know, accompaniment. But anyway, sorry. So to that exact point, the Parvati and Sibylle. Yeah. There is uh, Mike, Michael and Garuda seem to occupy the same thing. That was like that was the first time I noticed that. The Archangel Michael. Yes. And Garuda. And Garuda. All right. Because Garuda. like Garuda Garfield. Well, here's the. <laughs> I'll take it. I love yes. that. Yeah, that should. Neil, yeah, it's, it's, it's mine. Thank <laughs> you. Or I'm it. Actually, I'm its thing. Right. You know, Garuda Garfield. Every time I meet a Michael, I'm like, oh, I know you. No, but can't. You know, I was following. So, but I didn't. Aaron, so, so check this out. So I'm having an experience. But the first time I had this sort of revelation that you were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation with video games, where you're yeah. like, "Oh my God, these are those things. These are transcultural signifiers." Right. You know. Yeah. That I was painting this kind of abstract thing, and another Michael, my Rainbow Michael Haynes, a famous, world famous uh, Michael Brandon, performer, came up to me and said, yeah. "That looks like Garuda," and I was like, "What's Garuda?" And so I looked it up, and it's this—it's uh, the the Lord of Birds, whom Shiva rode against the Naga, the Snake People. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, the the image of Garuda is like constantly descending on a snake to fuck it up, exactly like talks about that. the flag yeah. of Mexico, and exactly like yeah, with the eagle and the snake. Yeah, and exactly like that yeah. image of Archangel Michael with the serpent. The eagle always spike. seems to trump the snake, you know? It's like, why does the eagle always get the win? Me and this How come the we're, snake we're fighting the eagle? That's our <laughs> task, you know? But the snake sheds the skin, so it's Ian a similar to birth. Are, we're fighting right. against evil. That's the Michael... Uh, Wait, the Michael, I missed that. What, it's the Mike Kellyan age, according to Steiner. Yeah. So me and this dude are fighting evil, actually, right. by the work that we're doing. And then right. and then Steiner's book on <laughs> Mikhail Moss, he's, he talks about how he associates the dragon with sulfur rising out of the earth and the wow. and the uh, as a very chemical and Michael with iron coming out of the sky like the periodic deposits of iron made into Earth's atmosphere by meteors and I was like oh interesting you're talking about dragons versus meteors seventy years before Luis Alvarez proposed the theory that dinosaurs were knocked out by a meteor hitting the Yucatan Peninsula I was like that guy was on some shit like. That is, that is, he was accurately reading the Akash. This is why we sense. like dinosaurs. Because we're dragon fighters. Totally. That's why we like fight, uh, dinosaurs. That's why we were really obsessed with studying them. We didn't know everything about them. Because we wanted to fight these fucking dragons. Absolutely. I got a, you know? I got a Tyrannosaurus tattoo, like the, the Jurassic Park logo mm-hmm. tattooed on my shoulder at 18. And <laughs> That's when, cool. And when people ask me about it, uh, yeah, I'll show you. When people ask me about it, I tell them that it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, wow, it's like the bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, we should get a picture of that. You know, when you have a bomber and every, or, or you know, a fighter plane and every, Wait, I got a picture of every hit that you've made, you paint on the side of the plane. That's cool. And I was like, I got it. How old were you? 
Yeah, well, the head was head and neck were eighteen, and then the uh, the arms I got later. But Are you going to add more body parts so we get a complete skeleton? <laughs> well, I thought about it, but the problem is that if you get a tattoo years and years apart like that, you have to redo the original you tattoo. Oh, ouch. Okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. So they had to re-ink the whole oh, head when they did the I arms. see. I see. Shining Megan with Garfield. Oh, yeah. One of his uh, tattoos. Tyrannosaurus tattoo photo opportunity. Okay, so wait, Garfield. Here, hold, hold on. Let me. So wait, we were playing a game earlier, and they were going to give you three, uh, three chances to guess your astrology sign. Are <laughs> you still playing the game? What? I have three guesses to guess your astrology sign. Well, that means you, you have a 25% chance. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm usually right. That was That's what story. I was telling him. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Did you get it? I got the pictures, yeah. Okay. And we can do, we can do some more later, too. Okay. Um, okay, well, my first one was Scorpio. No. Hey, but... don't tell me, dude. <laughs> you okay, have so 12 okay. shots at this, Michael. But he said but. <laughs> so he actually gave me a clue. So then you kind of fucked up. You shouldn't have said but, because now I'm thinking maybe you're a water sign. You shouldn't have said but. So you sort of gave it away to me, and you're. Right, well, what's your second? I could, I could do like the interrogation room and tell me why you only speak to me okay. through a machine. You can help. Well, well, you can help me a little bit. So, do, I mean, so if you want me to really demonstrate a skill, tell or not, you tell me about butt. But did you say butt because you thought I was just going to say that I've dated a Scorpio? Okay, for okay, good. Years. Thank you. So never mind that. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So what was my first Capricorn? Okay. Aries. No, not Aries. Okay, one more. I get one more. Scorpio. You said Scorpio first. Oh, no, I don't. I have one, I have one more. Yep. Wait. <laughs> one more. Wait, hold on a second. Wait, what did I do again? Scorpio, then Aries. Scorp- and I did Capricorn. And no, you said oh, Capricorn, yeah. but you never guessed it. It's Capricorn. It is Capricorn. It is Capricorn. I guess Capricorn. See, that was my guess. No, what are you talking No. <laughs> this is supposed to, That was my first guess. That's on record. Wait, no, no, why would you say that me like that? You, you messed up when you Capricorn was my was, first guess. Maybe. No, it was your second. Maybe. No, it no, wasn't. I can swear it was your second one. Maybe Capricorn was your first guess, but none of us heard you say it. I knew you were a Capricorn because you liked Dave Matthews, man. I knew that you and knew he was I was a Capricorn. Capricorn. Right. How did you know that I knew you were a Capricorn? Okay. I know all about my dad's Capricorn. Maybe the fact is I heard what you were saying, and so you thought you said it. Dude. But you didn't actually say it. No. You know, that doesn't make any freaking sense. Makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I said Capricorn. <laughs> you didn't. It's on. It's on record. I, I thought I heard you say Capricorn. You did, but not. It was like subliminal. Thing. No, it was. You said it. You said it after you did on this. Okay, here's what happened. I'll tell you. He knows how to do subliminal shit. I just figured out. No, I just figured out what happened. I'll figure out what happened. So when I first talked about guessing your sign, my first guess was Capricorn. But you said. No, no, hold on a second. When I first talked to you guys about Garfield's sign, yeah. my first guess was Capricorn. So that was in your minds. Yes. Later on, and I always did my three guess thing. So my last guess was Scorpio. And John said, oh, yeah, he's, I can see him being a Scorpio. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was my guess. So for some reason, uh-huh. I think I led with a Scorpio guess. And I didn't follow my own intuition, which was Capricorn. <laughs> and I was right. I was fucked, dude. Okay. See, this is the way, this is what Valet and Young were saying about uh, mystical shit that every time it's about to <laughs> prove itself like it's about to demonstrate itself to someone like you it fucks itself up there's a trickster element 
in these kinds of things. Well, it is so funny that you, I actually, it. you actually did yeah. say Capricorn under your breath oh, after after the subliminals. Yeah, after yeah. Nine, now he's recovering the, the trauma, the memory of it. Okay, no, you said it, but you said it after. You said it. You said after subliminal. Okay, you said it after guessing Scorpio. Yeah, okay. so, so I said. I said. I said. You said Scorpio. I said no. And then you're like, all right, all right, Capricorn. I did that? Then, yes. Yeah, and you're like, Eric's. That's fine. That's what It was subliminal. No way. It's like, so I that's Eric's thing right there, right? But I didn't hear it. It was, this is okay. I have a minimal amount of Ericksonian training, which means that that may have been like a deliberate thing. I, I put out Capricorn communicating with you guys at an unconscious level. But I'm lying, because Erickson would have actually known that he was doing that. I didn't right, know. That right, Milton Erickson was, he, on, he, was on the Erickson was so was conscious so it's of those subliminal little slips. Like, he friend, knew that he was doing my that. My friend shit. Norman Katz, living in Albuquerque, who I, is actually my first sort of oldest New Mexico connection. You really. talking about this guy? Yeah. Was the student, was like the lifetime student of Milton Erickson. Dude, I gotta meet this guy. Yeah. He's still around? Well, he's in Albuquerque. Like, right now, he's in Albuquerque. I can't find him. But, um, but, I mean, I but like, he tells me I, these stories like this all the time. Like he told me this story, and I Erickson might have, I might have, he was, was absolutely and a he modern. He was obsessed with uh, Native American art as well. Like oh, if you looked at his house, yeah. and he was colorblind, and so he wore all purple. So he looked like some kind of medicine man. Shaman, yeah. Like the dude, the guy was fucking, and he had polio, and so like he had all these physical ailments, and he had to like contend with. He had to do like two hours of pain control, hypnotic pain control every day just to function. He's like the three-eyed raven. Dude, the guy, like, he was a, he's a, he's a saint. Like, he's a, a, like, you know, here's what I think. Jung is a theoretician, an incredible theoretician, but Jung was not, didn't talk much about practical approaches. Erickson is all, Erickson was atheoretical. He did not like theories. Not like, he did not like that kind of stuff. He was all about practice, about how, Alter takes of consciousness and getting into these different states. He had no theories about any of it. He didn't like that kind of stuff. But if you bring Jung and Erickson together, you have some ultimate kind of psychotherapy, some sort of shamanistic psychotherapy. Mm. You have a Jungian theoretical model, both with Ericksonian practice. But Jungians will not accept that because they're attached to this old analytical model where you can't have an effect on the client. You know, you can't influence your client. No, don't influence your client. That's not the right thing to do. The client has to come to the conclusions themselves. But that's not realistic because... It's not, yeah. That's, that's they're like... I mean, cybernetics and depth psychology that. came out of the same complex systems understanding. How can people... How can... That's like children using a gun. It's like they don't understand that, that you know... Even by having a conversation with somebody, you're you're involved in this entangled. And that's not even how Young. Shit. Yeah, Young practiced psychotherapy much more like Erickson. Of Young, course, Young was crazy. Like he had his red book out, and he would have patients in and be like, "Look at the, what I'm painting today!" Like check this out. Like he was nuts. Like he would just like inspire people to change. Like he didn't do. Like psychoanalysis, like sitting on the couch and like, okay, how are you feeling today? And in other words, you're saying he wasn't Freudian. He wasn't Freudian. Well, and even Freudian, even Freud had reasons for doing what he did. You know, like Freud, like no, they were both brilliant. I mean, yeah, they were both brilliant. They were both brilliant. So there's this story that uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Blue tells me about Erickson that he was at a dinner with this guy, and that one of the other guests at the dinner was uh, someone that he knew who had a like a serious drug problem. Like a, he was like a, a heroin addict. And 
Erickson had never met Erickson. Are you doing Erickson hypnosis right now on me? No. no. <laughs> That's my knowledge. That's the kind of shit Erickson would do. I mean, he'd be yeah. telling a story that would have relevance. And then suddenly you realize, wait a minute. Well, we can get into the psychoanalyzing me. That, 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 no, it's not psychoanalysis. No, no, no. That was an Ericksonian method that he would tell stories to people. Yeah, it's an but, information. And you artist. would be somebody sitting in the periphery. Yeah. And the story was really for you. That's exactly oh, what I'm about to tell you. And you would pick up so on all the weird subliminal. associations. He tracked associations, Erickson, yeah. in yeah. some hyper Dude, the guy was fucking... So he's the so ultimate troll. Ultimate troll, dude. He's the ultimate troll. You, 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 uh, I think this may be the best okay. conversation I've Sorry, yeah, never mind. Sorry. Ever. Awesome. Like, in yes. my entire life. So, this is so good. That's awesome. So what happened was exactly what you just described, that he witnessed... As Milton Erickson, while in conversation with someone else, had like observed this guy somehow in a way sensory that, acuity, it's called. Yeah, yeah that, that yeah. he yeah. was saying something to you know whatever, saying something to someone else, and said, or maybe you know you could just like learn to fly helicopters, or maybe you could just learn to fly helicopters. <laughs> yeah, and and, then, like, and it was like this thing where Blue saw Erickson glance at this other dude while he was in conversation with someone else, and that guy, like, right after that, decided he was sobering up and, in order to become a military helicopter pilot. Oh wow! And like went on to have an illustrious career as a, a helicopter pilot in I think the Navy. So. I mean, Man, it was crazy. like so in, in, all... in one like wink. He's doing Erickson saving. He's doing Erickson at those to me right now. So, 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 so that was a trap. Right? I mean, no, no, no. The Ericksonian hypnosis taps into some Grafian universe where there's past life conversations happening. We don't know. All the dimensions of communication that are actually happening. And Erickson would let that happen. He would like he wouldn't try to control it. He would just like let the fucking dice roll where they will. Maybe we're all. Connected in hyperdimensional ways, and if I just go with it and don't try to like tr- interpret it in some analytical way, but just keep going with the communication, all kinds of weird shit can be communicated that needs to be communicated on multiple levels. That's why he was a shaman. Absolutely, okay. yeah, yeah, I do that. So, so, but I'm not doing it right now. Right. Well, you did this to him. So I want to become a helicopter pilot. And, uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, it is okay. his job to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's got to be. But to me, the hyper. Uh, helicopter pilot is a symbol for me of, you know, and and this dude had a issue with drink and and I want to become a helicopter pilot and fly high and and overcome. I think it would be cool too. Yeah, the, I used to have a childhood fantasy. Well, I don't of mean literally. A helicopter I just mean that's no, I have a literal. <laughs> well, so for <laughs> you, that I want to fly helicopter. You just you just channeled the healer. You just became you just with uh, the avatar of the shamanistic energy that see, and you would never think that Erickson was tapping into this kind of shit by reading yeah. his papers or anything about him. But now maybe they will know because we're talking about it. Maybe right. our generation has to bring that right out. Right at this moment, yes. Yeah, so that's like going on Wikipedia. You, wait, is this live? No, no. Okay, when sorry. they listen to it. Like, <laughs> okay, hold on. Milton no, no, Erickson. <laughs> yeah, so now he just got a whole bunch of adherents, converts. <laughs> so I never heard of no, Erickson, but uh, it seems like what he practices is almost like a combination of McLuhan and Cialdini. So the perhaps the modern Erickson is Scott Adams. Well, okay, so that's a really good point, because... 
So Scott Adams's work is based on neurolinguistic programming. He's a we're neuro cartoonist. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he's made this career out of being a persuasion coach now, right? But where that comes from is something called NLP. The developers of NLP were obsessed with Milton Erickson. And they actually went and they studied Milton Erickson. They wanted to figure out how this guy was able to just use communication to create all these changes in people. Like, he could just have a conversation with you, and you would leave the conversation becoming a different person. How did he use communication to do this? So they wanted to model what he was doing, and they used... They used uh, ling- uh, linguistics. So John Grinder, the the so NLP is two guys in the beginning. It was John Grinder. He was a linguistics professor, and Richard Bandler, who was a, a computer programmer and a mathematician. So they got together and they went and they studied uh, several other therapists at the time. They wanted to figure out what therapists were doing that was effective, and they extracted this linguistics model. Anyway, so that's one thing. Then they went and studied Erickson after that because Erickson was doing something very different than they were doing, and they extracted. Erickson's communication patterns. So you can actually learn these patterns and you can speak hypnotically if you want. You can learn, uh, it's called the Milton model, named after Milton Erickson. Or, you know, a nom shove, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to Snow Crash, by the way. That's really But magical speech, that. yeah, is, is exactly what we're talking about here. The Milton model, right. So you can learn the Milton model and you can speak hypnotically and then so that's persuasion communication that Scott Adams uses and so he got that from NLP that goes back to Erickson anyway that's my but here's the thing right and I swear to God Dr. Blue mentions this to me every single time I see him he always brings up the fact that the when he asked Erickson what he thought of NLP he didn't like it Er Erickson pointed to his chest and said it has no heart Um, no heart because he was the heart (laughs) (laughs) Because Bandler and Grinder were just, they were intellects. They just sucked him dry. He called them, you know, and he, he had this Joycean way with words, and he called them, he called Grinder, Grinder, Grinder and Bandit. So, <laughs> Bandler and Grinder. So he said, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Grinder and Bandit were here today. And they, you know, and so they would just drain him of all his information they could get. And they would leave and put it into these, like, language patterns, this linguistic stuff. How come, like, why didn't he work on them? Or, like... Why didn't it? Work well, you know, I mean, Bandler's probably a sociopath, right? He probably, <laughs> he, you know, well, isn't he the one that shot his girlfriend. He, he may have shot his uh, his girlfriend in the head. We don't know if, the, if that's true. Yeah, so it was like a Burroughs thing. Bandler was no. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like a Burroughs thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I just meant the shooting. In the grossest sense of it, the yeah. shooting. There was a weird, yeah, and then, but people don't know if he was hooked up with like the CIA because something happened where his apartment, his house was drained out, and he was teaching uh, the CIA people how to shoot guns. He was doing NLP for rifle training, sniper training, because you can use these NLP techniques to actually, um, in any skill you have, you can use these NLP techniques to enhance it really well. So he was actually commissioned. Both of them were Grinder and Bound, but they had a big falling out. And Bandler was a guy, a guy from the street, like. He was a genius. He was like the genie of NLP. Like, he was like, um, it was all his idea, really. But Grinder was a little bit older, and he was this professor. He was like a, a linguistics professor. And Bandler had this ability to mimic people. And that's what Grinder thought was interesting. Bandler had no psychology training, but he watched a few videos of Fritz Perls. And Fritz Perls does gestalt psychology. It's extremely complicated psychotherapy. It's, it's very bizarre. And... Bandler just watched a few videos, and he can mimic the voice and the behavior 
of uh, Fritz Perls without knowing any of the theory. And so Bandler could meet anybody, and he could extract your whole personality, and he could mimic you and do everything that you're doing without knowing why. And so Grinder has all this linguistics training. He said, listen, let's work together. If I can figure out what you're doing, I'll extract a linguistics model of it. And he was using Chomsky's, um, like, that deep structure model, like, certain yeah. structure, deep structure kind of thing. Right. And so he extracted that from Bandler, and that became NLP. And then they went and they interviewed, like, the most successful people of the time. They started with psychotherapists. But later on, it was business people. Like, so Tony Robbins mm-hmm. learned this from Bandler and Grinder, and he went and modeled business people. What were business people doing that made them really successful? But Milton Erickson was their favorite person that they studied, because he was this communication wizard, and they extracted all his language patterns. But anyways, but, but okay, so I know this one guy from the, from the Milton Erickson Foundation, and these are people who, who also knew Erickson, who were not NLP part of the NLP group. And um, this guy says, one of the best books on Milton Erickson was written by two sociopaths. It's called The Patterns and Hypnotic Techniques of Milton Erickson. And he's talking about the book by Bandler and Grinder. Mm-hmm. And to him, they're people of sociopaths. He thinks they're both, and he was serious. And he says he went to the last NLP conference when Bandler and Grinder were together. And he says, Bandler was so high on cocaine that he was completely out of his mind. And Grinder was like in like a no-talking mood to Bandler. And their whole thing was like this, this integrated thing that they do together, like perfect congruence. And it was a complete disaster, like a complete fiasco. My point being that these NLP guys were fucking crazy. They were geniuses, but they were fucking nuts. So Erickson did have a heart. And yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. So that kind of reminds <laughs> me of uh, Rene Girard. There's because that guy you said he was extremely good at mimicking. So maybe he was falling for some sort of mimetic conflict right there. Say more about that. Yeah. The mimetic thing with mimicking. A bandler can mimic people. And yeah, yeah, so you can mimic things. And in, uh, so what Rene Girard talks about is uh, there's like certain cultures where mimicry is banned. It's like seen as the devil because it's got all sorts of issues with these mimetic conflicts. So how it works is uh, you beyond your basic needs of food and water, your desires are mostly mimetic, which is to say that you mimic other people's desires there's no such thing as a original desire it's all mimicked somewhere and when people mimic each other they become similar and here's the thing that i think most people think differently about which is uh oh we should all get together and you know have harmony because we're the same but no that's actually the opposite that's actually bad because if you're all the same you're gonna desire the same shit and you're all gonna fight over it Mm. And that becomes this huge mimetic contagion where it's a war of all against all. And that's when you get to the concluding uh, resolution of it, which is the sacrifice of the scapegoat. So so how did you feel about this sort of ta- Tower of Babel stuff as outlined in Snow Crash that, that um, you know, the entropy of language has, you know, a, a positive normative value associated, like that... That actually breaking breaking up a kind of common tongue mm-hmm. is really good. Yeah, you know, that, that is really good for mind. like, like uh, information security. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it kind of really reminds me of a uh, uh, Bitcoin, well, crypto in general, and like a lot of things. Uh, uh, Nassim Taleb says, which is about decentralization, include increasing the robustness of a system. So in that sense, the like trying to get everything down to one language or at least 
the Babel mm-hmm. fish, like Google Babel fish, like you only that's that's one of those things where you see the double toroid at work, right? Because yeah. because even though we're we're decaying into this sort of the bottom of the funnel here, and it's like you know Aramon wins, and and there's only one language for spoken now. again. That's just for now, right? But <laughs> no, but it's like but at this, but it's but it's an, an eternally always mm-hmm. thing because even as that we we feel the tr- the pressure towards that outcome. Yeah, that's there's the outcome that like a babblefish type thing would mean that we all end up speaking our own languages. Yeah. That everyone has their own language. Yeah, so that your own duality. your own so, tongue is like your own public or private right. key and so yeah. you or your public key. And that and so you would need the private key of like your brain scan uh-huh. in order to like properly speak to somebody through the babblefish. Well wow, that's that's a cool idea. Someone would write a science fiction story about this right <laughs> well, now. Well I mean that's I, that's why, you know, there's the there is and this is probably bad form because I, I'm asking for him to be on the show. But there is uh, that rumor that Neil Stevenson was one of the six authors of the Bitcoin white paper. Mm-hmm. You know, that he's like one-sixth of Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> and after reading uh, Snow Crash, it, it's like less of a, a weird rumor. You know, it's somewhat more plausible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Although Snow Crash actually mentions this in the... the Actually, the languages, the programming languages, are fragmenting. So you have all these new languages being created. Oh, you can't just write the underlying machine code in uh, C anymore. You have to have Python, Java, whatever, all that. And there's more and more languages being created by different groups, tiny fragmenting groups of programmers. So there might be a time when, like, there are so many programming languages that almost no programmers use the same language. It's like, oh yeah, I, I write my programs in C, you write it in Python, nobody can understand each other. That might also be a possibility. Right, and also I think, you know, some of the more sophisticated crypto projects that I've seen out there are um, making a point mm-hmm. uh, that you can develop in any programming language on their that you can write apps yeah. in any language you want. Because yeah. they're looking for it they're, they're looking for mass adoption. They want everybody to be able to yeah, do so this. Yeah, so in a sense, like, everyone, everyone can work on it, but then, but not everyone necessarily uses the same language to work on them. Right. And there's, like, some new programs or, or protocols. I don't even know what they're called, but anyway, there's a lot of, a lot of times you, when you make a computer program, you don't use the same language for different components of it. Mm. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now... May your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.